You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. You can open your Bibles or turn in your devices to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. We're working through the book of Judges. And uh, let me make a little announcement in terms of uh, sort of our teaching on Sunday mornings. We are going to take a little hiatus after Easter um, from the book of Judges and do a little mini-series. What we're going to do is our theme Easter is going to be One True King. And uh, then following that, we're going to do a little mini-series on idolatry. So we've talked about idolatry over and over and over. We've talked about Baal and Asherah, but last I checked, those aren't the leading idols uh, in Frisco. Uh, And so we thought we would uh, address some of the more common places that we struggle with idolatry uh, because we're going through and talking about Jesus as Lord over our idols. So we thought we'd take a little time to take a deep dive and, and look at a number of those various idols that we struggle with and turn to the one true king. So we'll do a little mini-series on this theme, which is tied to Judges, and then we'll go back. So today we're going to finish the story of Gideon and talk about this, this truth, this sad truth, when leaders fail. When leaders fail. When I was in college, um, I experienced one of my most uh, spiritual highs and spiritual lows within the same week. You see, I was uh, serving at a, my church when I was in college. I did a college uh, internship in the college ministry. We had a robust college ministry where they not only had a college pastor, but they hired part-time interns as well. And um, so it was a great experience. And one of the highlights of serving in this college internship was I began to get exposure to the senior pastor of this, this larger, fruitful church. And I got to know him. I was able to meet with him on numbers of occasions, able to uh, share meals in his home with him and his family. Uh, and so he certainly had a significant influence on my life. And I remember just observing him and thinking, man, this is the most godly wise, spirit-filled leader that I have ever been exposed to. So you can imagine how excited I was when he invited me, along with a small group of people, to take a trip to South Korea. This was in the, uh, in the mid-'80s, and uh, Seoul, Korea was a spot of revival. And so we were taking a small group of people over there to go learn. We, we visited the largest church in the world, participated in an all-night prayer meeting with them. Actually, the Americans, we stayed one hour, but they prayed all night, evidently. Uh, we went to Prayer Mountain, and, and we were taking in all of this experience of revival, hoping to bring some of that you know, back home. And one of the highlights of the trip for me was just getting time to get to know this pastor more and to learn from him as a young man who wanted to be a pastor myself. So just to, to watch him and interact with him and learn from him was such a privilege. So I came back, this is right before my senior year, I came back ready for revival in my senior year because of this trip. So we landed on a Saturday, this group of people, the pastor and I, we landed on a Saturday. The next day I walked into church and I could immediately tell something was up. 
there was just this feeling that was weird in the building. During the singing, I noticed the pastor wasn't even in the room. I would soon find out he would never again be in that room. The executive pastor got up to speak that morning and told the church that while the group was away in South Korea, that some things had surfaced back home, and it had been revealed through someone that the pastor had committed adultery. Not only had he committed adultery, he had committed adultery multiple times. Not only had he committed adultery multiple times, but he had an entire secret life. His public life was pastor of a fruitful, growing, honestly, spiritually impacted local church. His hidden life was hooking up and having sex with men. When the announcement came, it was like I can remember the exact spot I was sitting in the room. It was like a kick in the gut. You could feel the oxygen sucked out of the room. I had no idea. He had never said or done anything inappropriate around me. No idea. So I spent my senior year not really experiencing the revival we had hoped for, but experiencing something much deeper in many ways, walking with a congregation through grief, through the, the effects of betrayal, through striving, because when something like that happens, all hell breaks loose, and people were at each other. Who knew? Who didn't know? Why didn't you say something? We should have seen it. Where was the accountability structure? It was chaos. But it was through that experience that I learned some very deep lessons about God, about myself, about leadership, about the local church, things that have really shaped me for 35 years. One distinct thing I remember was a leader telling the church that no one really knew the pastor. That, has had a, that, that truth has had a profound effect on me to want to be known over all these years. It is important to know how to process leadership failure. Here's the problem. We don't ever get a message on how to process leadership failure until someone's failed. And so then it's like changing the batteries in the smoke alarm when the house is on fire. It's too late. So today we're going to look at the story of Gideon, and we're going to find out what it looks like when a leader fails, and then I want to make a few applications about how to respond. And take a deep breath. At the end of the sermon, there's no announcement about a failed leader stepping down. That's what makes this message unique, because that's always the ending. It's so common. It's common in the big, big evangelical world, most recently Carl Lentz, Ravi Zacharias. It's so common in the evangelical church. It's so common in local churches that it's something we need to know how to process ahead of time. So there's no announcement today, and there's no announcement. I don't know of one coming up that this is done when things are normal. Let's look at what it means for us as people to, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and for leaders to be aware of the various temptations that come 
to us all. So let's look at the life of Gideon and how his story ends. It's been a great story so far, but the ending's not so great. So we're in chapter 8, verses 4. I'm going to start with verses 4 through 9, then we'll talk a little. I'll read a little bit more. We'll talk a little, then we'll make some application. Verse 4, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am uh, pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower." Now, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, this is a change. This isn't the same Gideon that we read about before. In, in chapter 6, Gideon is fearful. He's hesitant. He takes coaxing and convincing from the Lord. But now, he's arrogant. He's aggressive. He's vengeful. He's threatening. These are God's people. He's threatening God's people. In chapters 6 and 7, God directed Gideon every step of the way. He told him what he would do. He gave him promises. He called him. Now, there's no mention of God. Matter of fact, there's not going to be. Well, he mentions him, but there's no sense of God speaking and directing at this part of the Gideon story. God's absent from directing this story. Well, it all begins with him in verse 4, crossing the Jordan. It says in verse 4, Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over he and the 300 men with him. This is the same Jordan that the Midianites crossed over to attack. So the Midianites cross over the Jordan to attack. Now, Gideon is crossing over the Jordan, leaving their land and chasing down the king's of Midian. He is leaving the land. Uh, uh, This means that Midian has retreated. They've been defeated. The mission that God gave, gave him, he's won it. They've either all been killed or chased out of town, but Gideon is still pursuing. He's completed God's mission. God's not telling him to do anything right now, but he's still going. And he, he approaches two cities of Israel, Succoth and Penuel. They are on the outskirts of the land. So he crosses over, he comes to these cities which are on the far outskirts of Israel, and he says, will you help me out and my 300 men? Well, they are fearful. They say to him, hey, we're not giving you anything. You, you don't have uh, the heads of, uh, or not the heads, that comes in the next section. You don't have uh, Zeba and Zalmunna, the Z's. You don't have King Z's in your hands. In other words, they're, they're expressing doubt. You notice he doesn't say, the Lord told me like before. The Lord told me through a dream, this is what you do. There's no, there's no sense of the Lord here. He's not saying, God gave me a vision. God gave me a dream. 
claimed that he's going to do this. And so they're suspect. Here's why they're suspect. Because if they support Gideon and he goes out with his 300 men and he loses and Midian comes back into Israel, guess what the first two towns he's going to come to? These two towns on the outskirts. So should they have helped them? I don't know, but they don't. They're fearful uh, for not helping him. They don't want to suffer retribution. And so what does Gideon say to them? Well, he's vengeful. Verse 7, he says to them, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. I'm going to torture you when I come back because you didn't support me today. The, the, the men of Penuel, he tells them, I'm going to tear down your tower. So he says he's going to do something very serious. This is personal. He doesn't say, you're grieving God. Repent. The Lord has given us. Why aren't you trusting God? He gave me a dream. He's not saying that. He's saying, you don't support me. I will whip you with thorns. That's what he says. Verse 10, look what happens next. So Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with the army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian. Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand? What, why should we, uh, what we should give bread uh, to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So Gideon captures the two men. Now, here's something very interesting. Uh, in verse 12, uh, in there is this battle because they did have 15,000 of the 135,000 of them or, that were left. But in this battle, it says in verse 12, and he, Gideon, threw all the army into a panic. Distinctly different from the previous battle when it said God threw the army in a panic. So anyway, he, he, he wins the battle. He gets the kings. He finds 
uh, some guy, uh, some poor soul from Succoth and says, tell me, the 70, tell me the leaders of your town. He gets the leaders' names. He goes back into town and says, may I see the following people? Please come forward. He takes briars and he thrashes them and says, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Uh, this is the first instance of Israelite on Israelite violence that we find in the book of Judges, and it's just the beginning. It will continue. But this is the first instance where they're battling one another in this book where it just degenerates, degenerates. The chaos continues to degenerate. And then, well, he's just getting started because he goes back to Penuel. He tears down their tower, but the Scripture tells us that he kills all the men in the city. This is an Israelite city. Gideon is raised up to defeat their enemy and to unite Israel. And here he is murdering people because they didn't give him bread and water when his troops were famished. Well, what is driving this? If it's not the clear, I mean, it's, it's conspicuous. The absence of God's leadership is conspicuous compared to chapters 6 and 7. I mean, if he never led in 6 and 7, we wouldn't think much about it. But it's God said, God said, the angel of the Lord appeared. There's a dream. It's happening constantly, and it's conspicuous here that God isn't present. So what is driving Gideon? Well, we find out when he gets the kings before him. You see, these kings have killed his brothers. And so he is going to kill them. And in a shame and honor culture, he is doing that to defend the honor of his family. So he's going to humiliate them uh, by having a young boy kill them, which is his son. That would be humiliating to have a young man kill a king, but it's retribution for his family. And so he's going to do that. The son is afraid, so dad kills him himself. Dad goes ahead and kills both of the kings. Um, so he has, consider what he's done. Without discussing the ethics, we won't get into the ethics of should he or should he have not killed them. But here's what we find. Gideon guiding himself, Gideon leaving the land, Gideon, Gideon brutalizing his brothers and killing some of his brothers, meaning fellow Israelites. Gideon taking revenge on escaped kings. In chapters 6 and 7, he is successful following God's plan. He listens to the Lord. He does what the Lord says, and he has great success because the Lord wins the battle for him. The Lord scatters the troops. The Lord causes them to get into disarray and start killing one another, the Midianites. So it's very clear in chapters 6 and 7 that God has given him success and what can typically happen is when God brings fruit, when a leader experiences some kind of success and following the Lord's very clear direction as Gideon has done, what can so subtly happen is that fruitfulness and success, winning the battles, seeing God work can be intoxicating. And the leader just sort of feels like, I'm invincible. I mean, look at what has happened. And so now he, he is invincible and he sorts, sort of pursues his own agenda. That's really the first idea here. I think there's two big ideas I want to talk about here. But the first is when leaders pursue their own agenda. And that's what's happening. He leads with his own agenda. He is seeking to, um, he is seeking to chase down those who have harmed his family 
and, and, and he is uh, ultimately making it about him. You won't support me, you will suffer. Early on, the mission was about God. The mission was about glorifying God. But it's something different now. He's confident in himself. Listen to what he says to Succoth and Penuel. He essentially says, you better follow me. Paul says, on the other hand, follow me as I follow the Lord. The purpose of godly leadership is to build people into the Lord and to charge people to only follow me as I follow the Lord because that is the fruit of godly leadership. Whereas here, well, it's a world of difference. He is saying, you know, follow me and do what I say or else. In chapter 7, when he had a vision that God was going to give Midian into his hand, what did he do? He worshiped the Lord. Here we don't see that. When he wins these battles, there's no worship. There's no acknowledgement of God's grace, his provision, his power. A leader is primarily, and in the first place, a follower. In, in the church or in the people of God, a leader is a follower of God, modeling and pointing to him. But here Gideon has much more of a personal agenda. And, and actually from here, it gets worse. Look at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I'll not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the cam- their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizarites. So the men of Israel, after this all happens, they want Gideon to rule over them, and they want him to establish a dynasty, you and your son and your Uh, sons after him. Why do they want Gideon to rule? Well, verse 22 gives the answer. 
And if you were here when we studied chapter 6 and 7, this, this was like a slap in the face to us. Chapter, uh, verse 22, he says, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, for you, Gideon, have saved us from the hand of Midian. We saw the battle. It was you, Gideon. We saw the kings killed. It was you, Gideon. We saw the, the account with you just had 300 men and your torches and your uh, trumpets and your clay jars, and you killed over 100,000. You did that. We want a guy like this to rule over us. Celebrity culture is not a new thing among the people of God. We all want a king. We want a hero. Glorifying a human leader for what God has done didn't start when pastors got Instagram accounts. That's been going on forever. We want a leader that we can see and relate to and trust, and we want to elevate and lift up that leader as the one who has delivered us. You saved us. It's the exact opposite of the lesson of the 300. What did God say? He said, you've got whatever it was, 32,000 people in your army, and he whittles it down to 30, 300 because he said the people of Israel would take credit for the victory. He said, you would think that you are saved by your own hand. If you beat an army that has four times your number, that's chapter six. If you beat an army that has four times your number, you'll think I still did it. So you've got to go 300 versus 135,000 or you'll think you saved yourself. And now what do they think after it's all done? Gideon saved us. So be our king. How different. In chapter 5, when Deborah and Barak won a battle, they wrote a song, they sang it, and it took up a whole chapter of the Bible. They had a victory song praising God for the victory. When Gideon wins, the people say, that's the guy that did it. Let's make him our ruler. Now, Gideon gives a theologically wonderful answer to this request. No, I will not rule over you. God, the Lord, Yahweh, will rule over you. That is a great answer. Here's the problem. He, um, he says, I'm not going to be your king, and then turns around and immediately starts acting like a king. He takes all of the spoils of war, takes all of their gold. He has the, the, gold, the purple robes of the kings of Midian. He establishes a harem after this. Uh, we find out that he has 70 sons from many wives. So he takes their gold, fashions it into an ephod. We'll talk about that in a second. But he takes the spoils of war. He establishes a harem of wives. And then in the craziest thing imaginable, he has a concubine. He sleeps with her. He has a child. And he names him Abimelech. The name Abimelech means literally my father is king. So he says, I will not be your king. Have you met my son? My father is king. <laughs> the, the reason that detail's given to us, the reason that son is mentioned is because we're going to find out after Easter and after our idolatry series, we're going to find out that son is a mess. What's coming up next is trouble, Abimelech, but also because of his name. How interesting 
He, he, is, he is saying one thing and doing another. He is not leading with the fear of the Lord. So he leads with a personal agenda, and he leads without the fear of the Lord. When, when there is sound truth, sound doctrine, sound messaging, sound teaching, and then a life that is the exact opposite of that, that is someone who lives without the fear of the Lord. Now, obviously, there's a discrepancy in every Christian between what we believe and how we live. The only person who was 100% integrated on what they believed and how they lived was Jesus. So there's a discrepancy for all of us. But in Gideon's situation, we find out it's severe. I'm not going to rule over you. I'm not going to be a king. I'm just going to act like it. Well, something worse happens than that. He takes all their gold, he forms it into something. This is reminiscent of Aaron and the golden calf, isn't it? So he forms it into an ephod. What's an ephod? Well, God said there was to be an ephod and there was only one in all of Israel. No one is authorized to make their own ephod out of gold. No one's authorized to do that. The ephod was a tunic Uh, made of fine material, sort of a sleeveless garment that was worn only by the high priest. It wasn't supposed to be in uh, his town of Ophrah. It was with the tabernacle. Uh, So it's at the tabernacle, uh, which uh, is not here in Ophrah. Uh, It is, uh, I think, at Bethel at this point. But anyway, at any rate, that is where the ephod goes. And so the ephod is, uh, there's two distinct things about the ephod. It has 12 uh, rare gemstones on it, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it has a little pocket on it. And in the pocket are the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim are, well, nobody really knows, but they're two little things that help divine or discern the will of God. Some people say, think maybe it was like two coins that could be flipped to know like yes or no or two little sticks or there's different ideas. But somehow there are these two things that the high priest could use in a crisis to discern the will of God at the tabernacle where God is uniquely present. So this is all holy, priest, tabernacle, unique. But, but Gideon's riding high. He's killing kings. He's whipping the men of Succoth, he's killing the men of Penuel. And everybody's saying, you're our king. Man, you get pretty full of yourself when some of that happens. So he's going to go ahead and make this holy thing. He's acting like a high priest. He's building the people into himself because now he has the means to disseminate God's will for the people. Yes, chapter 6 and 7, God is speaking to him. Yes, God is directing him. But God did not say, go channel my will to the people by creating an alternative house of worship with an alternative ephod, with an alternative office to the high priest. God didn't tell him to do any of this stuff. And God's people loved it. They loved it. They didn't want to have to go to the tabernacle. We got this warrior king. He'll tell us the will of God. God will speak to him. And they whored after. They prostituted. That's what their worship was before this ephod. They loved it. The people of God wanted this. Now, what is this? It, it's, not like, it's not like in the passages of Scripture where... Uh, Prostitution is compared to worshiping other gods. They're not worshiping another god here. 
They're worshiping Yahweh, but what they're doing is they are manipulating him. They're wanting to sort of have their own tool to know the will of God, sort of their own magic eight ball where you ask a question and turn it over and get the answer endorsed by God. That's what they want. And so God is, God is a tool for them to sort of use Gideon has set up a tool to use God, and it said it snared Gideon and his family. Gideon and his family are trapped and ensnared by this. Man, after a great victory, Gideon crashes. He rejects kingship but acts like a king because truth doesn't drive his heart, just his lips at this point. He says God alone rules God alone rules over you, except I will prescribe my own ways of worship and take manners into my own hand, which are always treated in the Old Testament far more seriously than any of us can imagine. False worship like this, uh, you know, uh, um, unendorsed worship from God, it is always treated seriously. This gap between what he says and how he leads It shows his lack of the fear of God. God is jealous for his glory. And God called Gideon to battle for the very purpose to give a miraculous victory so everybody would leave idols and say, isn't God awesome? God called Gideon to battle and gave him victory so that everyone would say, whoa, we repent of idolatry. We look to God alone. Our God is greater than we knew. And the exact opposite happens by the end of his life. They're not awed by God. They're awed by Gideon. They're prostituting themselves before this uh, thing he created from gold, this ephod. I think this passage has all kinds of warnings in it, does it not? It has a warning for leaders to be sure. It has a warning for leaders that Gideon started well, that Gideon had a vibrant communion with God in the early stages of this. But by the end, uh, we didn't read about God here at the end. He's absent. Barry Webb, in his commentary about Judges, tells the story somewhat similar to the one I opened with when he was younger and this church he was in, the pastor who seemed fantastic, up out of the blue, left his wife of 30 years uh, and just left the church and uh, committed adultery with another woman, left his wife. And he didn't know how to process it. How could this godly man do that? And this is what he writes. As I was struggling with this, an older friend spoke some wise words to me that I'll never forget. He said that by the time a man like this pastor uh, had, Uh, reaches midlife, he's learned to do a lot of things. He can lead services, he can pray publicly, he can preach, he can counsel people, and so on. And because he can do all these things, he appears to be a strong Christian. Furthermore, he keeps getting feedback from others that tell him he's a strong Christian, and so he begins to think of himself as one. However, if he has neglected the basic disciplines of meditation on the word, prayer, confession of sins, and accountability to others, he is in reality a very weak Christian. And when a big temptation hits him, as it often does in midlife, he can be gone in a moment. And everyone is shocked because they thought he was a strong Christian when in reality he was not. 
What they are witnessing is the final outcome of a deterioration in the person's relationship with God that has been progressing in small steps over a long period of time. There's great wisdom here and warning for all of us, especially those in leadership. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a good question for all of us, but if you lead in any capacity, we've got many great leaders in our church, that is a, a stirring warning to ask, am I deteriorating? Nobody's neutral. We're deteriorating or we're progressing in the Lord. What are the small steps I am taking? Am I taking steps toward or away from the Lord? Is God making a difference in my life? Really, not just what I say publicly, is God really making a difference in my heart and life? Because if you've been around the church any length of time, especially any length of time to be in some kind of leadership role, you've learned to do this stuff. You know how to lead a small group discussion. You know how to teach a children's ministry class. You know how to play your instrument and serve on the worship team. Whatever it is, you know how to do that. But are you doing that from a heart that is encountering the living God by his spirit? Here's one. Am I privately crediting him for what happens through me? Gideon doesn't appear to do that. He's not, he's not worshiping in this chapter 8. So he doesn't get a victory and worship. He doesn't see God move and worship. He sees God move and makes an ephod, takes credit. Am I, am I doing that? Am I, am I crediting God in my heart privately? Not publicly saying, praise the Lord, but privately Am I thanking God for anything that happens through me? It's true for every one of us, whether we are a leader or not. You will be what you are now becoming. We're all taking steps, and you will be what you are now becoming. There's a warning for all of us in this. And the warning is we mustn't be looking for kings. There's one king. We mustn't be looking for kings. We mustn't idolize leaders. We mustn't be looking for an ephod that is a leader guru who can tell us unique and amazing things about God's will, one that we become dependent upon. We mustn't be looking for kings. Now, to be clear, the uh, leaders bear responsibility for their actions, I'm not removing responsibility from leaders. Leaders bear responsibility for their actions. But we all bear responsibility for making them kings and high priests in our heart. That's what it, It's the people who say, you be our king. It's the people who are putting him on this pedestal. They bear some responsibility in this too. I'm not victim blaming here at all. I'm calling for an appropriate vision of leadership and a godly response to leaders. The New Testament teaches we're to trust our leaders, be grateful for our leaders, even even honor our leaders in an appropriate way. But that's all balanced by understanding that our leaders are sinners, they are weak, they are temporal. There's one true king who's not temporal, he's eternal. Our leaders are to lead us to God 
and not themselves. And if you've been around any length of time, you will have leaders at every level in the church who will disappoint you. And we need to know how to respond to those disappointing moments. When they are run-of-the-mill, if we could say it that way, human disappointments, the person sins like everybody does in a regular kind of a thing. He, he or she, um, you know, has human weakness that we didn't know about and we saw it and, uh, you know, sort of, sort of we find out they're human. Then when we find out they're human and we see their humanity, then we should relate to them by grace um, as those who are just like we are, not kings, not queens, not high priests. They're just like we are, sinners in need of a Savior. When they disappoint us in egregious ways that disqualify them because their sin is of such a uh, hypocritical nature or such a scandalous nature that it disqualifies them from leadership, then we support their being disciplined and they're being removed from their role. We grieve with and support anyone who's been victimized by them, if it's, a, if it's a sin where there are direct victims. They're certainly indirect victims, but if they're direct victims, we, we support them and grieve with them. We pray for the leader and call them to repent. But most of all, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on on Jesus. I've noticed two things that happen when there's egregious sin in a leader and it becomes public. Some people respond with such disillusionment, they leave the church and never come back. Some leave the faith. There's another extreme position I've seen where people stand up and defend the leader who has committed disqualifying sin, but stand up in defense. Aren't we all human? Let he who is without sin throw the first stone. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the person should be disciplined out of love for the person and out of, uh, the, for the glory of God. But they defend, and in sometimes, like with Gideon, they follow them on to their next deal. Even though so they shouldn't be having a next deal, oftentimes they run independent just as Gideon, and they follow them on. Both of those, I can't trust Jesus anymore because of a failed leader, We're all just sinners. I'll follow a failed leader. Both of those are blind to Christ. Both of those have taken our eyes off of Jesus and trust him. He is the king. He is the high priest. And we are to be those who look to him alone so that our faith is never shipwrecked. Oh, we're grieved when anyone falls into sin. We're brokenhearted. We weep. We stand with anyone who's been harmed. But our secure hope must be in Jesus. It should have been, I will not rule over you. The Lord rules. We don't need ephods. We don't need kings. We all need to sing and celebrate and worship and fix our eyes on the Lord. That's how chapter 8 should have ended. Looking to the Lord. I read a quote this week from Dale Davis that I found very stimulating. He writes the following, and I'm going to close here. This shadow of inconsistency and of disappointment frequently hangs over God's servants. Gideon was hardly a rare exception. This is not to excuse the sins or errors of the leaders of God's people, but this fact that Gideon 
uh, is inconsistent and fell, this, this whole thing. But let this temper our expectations, the story of Gideon, let it temper our expectations, let it cushion our despair, and let it lift our gaze to the leader of God's elect who does not disappoint, in whom is no sin, and against whom no charges can be brought, We will never find perfection of office except in our Lord Jesus Christ. Realizing this can save us from cynicism that may come from disappointing servants of Christ. I feel there are some that you are carrying a weight, you're carrying a burden, uh, where you, you find it very difficult to trust because of a previous experience with a leader. You find it very difficult to commit. There may be some watching online that you, you feel like you can't even come in to the building because of there's such a scarring issue in your past. And I, I believe that the Lord wants to restore our faith in him and fix our eyes up on him. Never making an excuse for someone else's failure, but by the same token, seeing that there are no kings but Jesus. There are no high priests but Christ. And we are to look at him And remember, as we look at him, that the success of the mission is guaranteed. Gideon ends badly, but you know what? It didn't stop God from saving his people. Gideon blew it. It didn't stop God from sending his son through Israel. Gideon blew it, but it didn't stop God from getting the gospel to you so that you could be saved by the good news of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, not the perfection of all human leaders. You were saved by the grace of God. And after all, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Nothing can stop the mission of Jesus. And though though we are grieved and broken and weep and burdened when these sorts of things like the story of Gideon happen, it should break our hearts, but it should call us all the more to look to Jesus and fix our hope on the one who never disappoints, who is always faithful, who is always good and will one day restore all things in a new heaven and new earth where there will be no sin, no hypocrisy, no failure, no suffering ever again. That's where we're headed. There's bumps along the way, but that is where we are headed. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Pray for your leaders. Take heed to your own life. Recognize your own vulnerability and temptations. Dare not put a leader in the role of king or high priest as Israel did here. And look to your Jesus who is building his church and will restore all things. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.